everybody, welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. As always, my name is Eric Helms, and I am your one and only permanent host of the show. Uh, however, today I have the unique pleasure of being joined by someone you might have heard of. He's done some writing in the fitness industry, a temporary guest host, Greg Knuckles. Greg, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on. How's it going? I'm well. I'm pretty good. You know, it's uh, it's been a long time hosting this podcast, and uh, I feel like I've needed a little bit of a change of pace. It's great to have you alongside of me. Uh, it feels it feels different today. I don't know what it is, but it also feels good. Well, I I definitely appreciate your magnanimity uh, for having me on. Well, I uh, I appreciate that use of a big word that I don't know what it means, and I'll pretend to just uh, appreciate it and, and know what it means. <laughs> so. All right, folks. So, so first off, I just want to say thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. And and if you want to do a little more than listen, if you want to support us, there are some ways to do that. So first off, uh, probably our largest profit margins come from uh, the SBS Pod uh, code that you can use at Bulk Supplements. And not only is that the way you can help us the most, that's also your personal path to wealth. Uh, if you think about the kind of savings you'd make on that. It's it's right up there with with rich dad poor dad you know that 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 truly transformed most people's personal finances uh, back in the early two thousands and and this is no different it's the next coming uh, in addition you can also subscribe to Mass that's monthly applications and strength sports where we go into the details on a monthly basis um, of the most recent research on strength and physique sports I am one of the authors as well as Greg just a interesting little crossover with him being the guest host today but we've also got some folks you might have heard of uh, Dr. Mike Zerdos and Dr. Eric Trexler is that his name Greg I think so I think so too uh, honestly he's been added recently we're not a hundred percent sure on that and he's I'd say he's doing okay um, and we'll probably keep him on for the long term uh, additionally, we also have uh, a fantastic uh, diet tracking app that's called Fit Genie. And if you want to check out Fit Genie. Wait, are, are, are you sure? Sorry, I'm sorry. My, uh, You know, it's weird that I spelled it wrong. Sorry, Macro Factor. I actually don't even know where I got Fit Genie from. That, um, that is a really common typo to make. Yeah, you know, so yeah. most people have the QWERTY keyboard. I have one that literally has transposed just the letters for Macro Factor with Fit Genie. So, Damn, that's crazy. Yeah, you know, you think Apple does a good job with, with most things, and then they just give you a wacky keyboard, and here we are. So apologies for that, folks. Definitely want to check out Macro Factor, uh, which is a, uh, an excellent diet app for anyone who's looking to uh, modify their nutrition and use a data-driven approach to personalize it and make sure that, uh, you know, the, the, the assumptions you're making are at least grounded in something factual. Uh, there might be better, better you know, diet tracking apps out there i don't know and uh but but i've heard good things i mean about if, if there are i'm certainly not aware of any yeah it, honestly it would be nice if i had some type of uh genie that i could ask i can just rub the lamp and be like hey my first wish is can you tell me about other diet tracking apps that might help me get fit genie and i would ask them and then, and then that genie would recommend to you uh macro factor maybe maybe what well, we'd have to see about that um, but moving on, uh, another, another great way to support us and really help yourself would be through our, our coaching platform. So we have Stronger by Science Coaching. We've got a lot of great coaches who have a lot of expertise. Uh, however, Greg, I don't know if you've heard about this uh, longtime good upstanding company, 3D Muscle Journey, that also has some coaching specifically for natural bodybuilding. Uh, no, no, I have not. And uh, in fact, I'm, I'm not interested in learning more about them. So let's proceed. 
That's all right. That's okay. Just uh, <laughs> the word on the street, Greg, is that they're pretty good. And since I am the actual host, I'm just going to leave it at that. And you can choose on your own who you'd like to hire for whatever your goals might be. Just being aware that there's a lot of good options out there for, for many different things. With that said, uh, Greg, how's the road to the stage doing? You know, road to the stage is not going the best right now. Uh, oh, man. Maybe but- you should seek out some coaching from from some specialists who help people get to the stage. No, it, it's weird. Um, so a particular level of calorie intake that was having me reliably lose weight for a couple weeks. Uh, now, just for whatever reason, for the last week or so, uh, the scale's ticking up. Honestly, mm. I think it might just be allergies. Uh, dear viewers, you'll see me rubbing my face a lot all throughout this episode. Uh, pollen time has definitely come to North Carolina and my head certainly feels like a balloon, um, just just inflating with mucus. Uh, and who knows? Maybe that's a generalized thing throughout my entire body. So anyway, uh, it's it's been a rough couple of weeks for Road to the Stage, but overall trajectory is still positive, and I uh, feel quite confident that things will get back on track. I'm glad to hear it. And uh, is your weight up? Is it up or is it just kind of maintaining? It's up like a pound and a half. Okay. Not too bad. So I think if anything, it's impressive that you have a pound and a half of snot in your head right now. I'll I'll tell you what, man. It feels like I have five pounds of snot in my head right now. <laughs> it's it's terrible. Like and the annoying thing is it's so beautiful. Like Raleigh in the spring is tremendous. And our neighborhood specifically, like everyone is a gentleman or gentlewoman gardener. Um, like there, there's so many pretty trees, pretty flowers just all over the place. One street over is a rose garden that you can go walk around. And so like, I'll do that and it's nice. And then like two, two hours later, just I'll, I'll feel, uh, you know how your head feels when you really, really grind out like an RPE 14 deadlift, like your Mm -hmm. head feels like it's going to pop like, uh, you know, like the, hey, what am I, is it from Animal House? Like, that's how my head feels. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it it feels like way more than a pound and a half of snot. But, uh, yeah, maybe maybe that's all it is. <laughs> well, let's hope so. And, and just for our, uh, our non-American listeners, five pounds of snot is about 2.2 kilograms. Just FYI. Thereabouts. How is the road to Athens? You know, Greg, I had one of those, I don't know if this ever happened to you, but you, but you wake up. And you look in the mirror and you feel taller, more attractive. You realize, wait, I can see this in, in the mirror and I don't even need to put on my glasses. And then you're like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm truly a different, possibly better man today. <laughs> and you think about the life choices you've made to this point, And some of them just do not sit well with you anymore. And they may maybe feel pointless or even counterproductive. So the road to Athens is, is canceled. I'm done with it. I don't understand why I even started it. Um, running is truly something that I think degrades, uh, the, the, the moral fiber of the soul and the character, uh, that, that one tries to build. And I've fully rededicated myself to, uh, competitive bodybuilding and strength sport and, and nothing else. So any physical endeavor I have, if it doesn't support the goals of looking amazing in a speedo, um, or potentially looking, uh, you know, amazing in a singlet while lifting mediocre weights, 
then I'm not doing it. So, so road to Athens, sorry, folks, uh, the closest thing you can get from the road to Athens would be like the road to the natural Olympia, which is at least culturally similar, but that's it. It's over. It's done, Greg. I'm sorry. No, that sounds good for me. And just one thing I'll note for the listeners, that means now within the canon continuity of the Stronger by Science cinematic universe, Road to the Stage is no longer, uh, uh, Road to Athens is no longer a segment. Uh, it was just declared dead. So if it ever comes up on a future podcast again, that is a major continuity issue. And uh, there should be a lot of hate mail directed at Eric. Which one? You be You be the judge. Yeah, I, I would be fine with what, whichever host is the primary host named Eric. When those continuity errors are made, make sure you email them. I probably send two emails because sometimes the first one goes to spam. Um, but you know, the good news, Greg, is now we can both report on the road to the stage because that's we, we share that now. You know, we're, we're simpatico. So if, if that is if you're ever back on the podcast. Yep, we'll uh, we'll see. All right, so as as I understand it, you have a research review segment lined up? I do, but um, if you could let me host my own podcast a little bit, I'd like to hear about some feats of strength if you have any of those that you'd like to uh, discuss first. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally forgot about that. Uh, yeah, so I, I do have one this week, which uh, maybe I should have mentioned last week, but uh, whatever, we, we didn't do feats of strength uh, in that episode. Uh, Jennifer Thompson competed mm. at the Arnold, and she hit a bench press of 145 and a half kilos, or about 321 pounds, um, which would be a new world record if it was a meet where the the standard weight classes were adhered to. Uh, but it, it was just kind of like an exhibition thing. But the very noteworthy thing about it is Jennifer Thompson, as I understand it, has been competing for about 70 or 80 years at this point. Uh, and this was uh, her her biggest bench in a meet. And I think her second biggest bench ever. I'm pretty sure there was a video from a couple years ago of her doing uh, 325 touch and go in like a football weight room. Uh, but, you know, she, she's been competing forever, and this is the biggest bench she, she's ever hit, hit in a meet. Um, so just... Uh, another crowning achievement on a career that has had uh, many, and, you know, I'm sure there are many more to come. Yeah, no, honestly, Jen Thompson is, is I think I think you might have even posted on this on Facebook that if you were to look at how many standard deviations she is above other bench pressers, that it's a, an outlier performance that might not be rivaled even across other sports. Do you, do you still hold that to be, uh, you know, a belief? It depends how wide of a net you cast, um, mm. because there are several Paralympic benchers who are who oh, are yeah. putting up comparably great numbers. Um, but among like USAPL IPF competitors, like yeah, she's I, I'm pretty sure the numbers she's putting up are when last I checked, like six and a half standard deviations from the mean, uh, which is absolutely wild. And I think like four standard deviations from the mean of internationally competitive female powerlifters yeah and and just to reiterate for those who, who who might not have picked up on it she's not a super heavyweight this is this is someone who competes typically in like the uh i think the 63 kilo class i think at this comp specifically she was around 65 but yeah for the american listeners that's that's like 144 pounds benching over three plates it is 
mind-boggling. And like, like, like Greg said, um, she's an M1 approaching M2. So uh, honestly, it's, yeah, she's continually amazing. So it's so a big shout out to Jen Thompson. That's an incredible bench press. Yes, and it now, is. Greg, I, I have my <laughs> my physique science review, which which you could lead me into. I don't know if you want to keep this job or not. No, I I already tried, and you rejected my offer. So lead yourself in however you want. Well, thank you, Greg, for that a previous offer uh, that that you led me in perfectly on to this segment. So uh, so for those who don't know, for those who are a little more interested in the the, the stronger uh, by science aspect and 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 less on the look amazing by science aspect. <clears throat> Bodybuilders do peak, uh, but they do it in a unique way. So so if you're not familiar, those who get on stage for competitive bodybuilding, they follow what's typically called peak week protocols. And unlike peaking for a strength sport, uh, this is not, you know, primarily about tapering and, you know, increasing intensity and trying to get the biggest 1RM on the platform. Or like you might see in various other sports uh, where you're trying to be in the best specific performance place you can be you know, a marathon runner maintaining their ability to run marathons while dumping fatigue uh, or you know more power-based sports that are more velocity dependent trying to peak that characteristic this is all about peaking appearance and it's had some very interesting uh, theories behind it and traditions if we want to go back to uh, the very early stages of physique sport and how it's progressed over time but typically what you're going to see and I'm not necessarily endorsing all these practices, which we'll get to in a moment, but the typical procedures that people follow for peaking involve some combination of water manipulation, electrolyte manipulation, and carb loading. And the idea behind this all is that you're trying to manipulate the intracellular to extracellular water ratio so that you have more of your body water in muscle to make your muscles look larger and more impressive and more separated and less in the subcutaneous space, so there's less to blur that definition, uh, and we're leveraging some physiological principles to do that that are often related to the sodium-potassium pump, uh, and so you'll often see loading potassium, cutting sodium, restricting water to some degree or various degrees. There's a, a fair amount of heterogeneity between different bodybuilders and how they approach that, and then loading carbohydrate with the idea that because carbohydrate is stored with glycogen, that'll that, that process will preserve uh, the water that is in muscle so that any water that is lost uh, comes from other spaces. So you look amazing. Now, Greg, I can tell you as a competitive bodybuilder myself, who's probably been to close to 100 shows at this point and has competed in double digit myself, um, and one caveat, primarily natural bodybuilding shows. I have been to some untested shows as a spectator, but as a coach and as an athlete, I'm very kind of siloed in the natural bodybuilding space. When people follow these, these procedures, at least in the amateur ranks, to me as an observer, it seems like they're basically rolling the die and even odd, they're gonna feel like they that improved their appearance or potentially did nothing or, or actually degraded their appearance. So um, it is definitely something that is maybe more of an art than a science generally. Uh, however, that is not to say that there isn't a fair amount of research on this topic, and it's actually quite interesting. So, uh, so, so Greg, uh, I don't know if you've noticed this when looking at the literature, but there was a period like in the 80s and 90s where there was a lot of bodybuilding research that was on specifically like the nutrition and the training processes and 
and interviewing athletes, going to championships, you know, measuring, mm-hmm. uh, you know, body composition, all that stuff. And then there was a real dearth of research from like the 2000s until maybe up to like 2010 or so. Um, mm-hmm. Not to say if you didn't search PubMed and bodybuilding, you wouldn't find it, but it's all in like eating disorders and anabolic steroid use. And then boom, starting with that first case study by Rossow uh, that I think came out in either 2012 or 2013 of a natural bodybuilder. Then for the last 10 years, it's been, I guess, another little renaissance uh, of bodybuilding research. I don't know if you've, if you've seen that. So it might not shock you to learn. I have not spent that much time on PubMed looking for bodybuilding research. <laughs> um, but that, that is interesting. What, what do you think uh, contributed to those, those kind of spikes and lulls? Do you, do you think that it had to do with the kind of relationship in people's minds between bodybuilding and steroids and then just the degree to which uh, steroids fell out of favor um, you know, following Ben Johnson and the MLB steroid investigations and, and all of that stuff? Yeah, I think it's a combination of factors. And this is something we still see today, the societal impact on what research is done and how much of it's published and the interest. They're definitely not, it's not like, you know, we often talk about the ivory tower of research, like it's, oh, we're separate from society and, and we're doing this research that should inform everyone else. We're not influenced by the peasants. But I, I don't think that's actually the case. So I, I think that if you look at the 80s and 90s, they're coming off the high of like the 80s action movie era. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's at his peak popularity. Um, and it's cool to do bodybuilding. And, you know, we had a lot of fitness interest in the 80s that was very bodybuilding influenced. And I think you're seeing the echoes of that in the research that's actually looking at competitive bodybuilding. And then I totally agree then we had some of the very public, you know, the congressional hearings on steroid use. Uh, we had uh, Mark McGuire saying he used Andro. And there's this general kind of negative view that, that happened in the late 90s into the 2000s that I think persisted for a while. So that, that I, I agree with you. And then I think, interestingly enough, the majority of the research that's come out kind of like in our sector since the 2010, you know, after that point, like the 20 teens onward, a lot of it's been on natural bodybuilding. And I do think that, you know, folks like Lane Norton and other very kind of science focused folks in that community have, they created uh, another generation of interest. And, you know, I, I know a lot of people who got into grad school and doing research uh, because they were motivated by that. And I think bodybuilding does draw a lot of heavily analytical people. And I don't think it's a uh, you know, a random thing that, that many of them ended up getting into science. So they, anyway, that's my little armchair sociology explanation for it. I don't know if you buy it. No, I, I think that makes sense. I, I also wonder if there's, if, if there are class dynamics in play to some degree, um, just because like, I, I feel like at least um, when, when bodybuilding and gym culture initially really started blowing up in the 60s through the 80s it was more egalitarian to like maybe slightly middle upper middle class um, like the sorts of people who would tend to filter into academia and then I feel like from the mid 80s certainly into the 90s like the class associations with exercise started trending towards more like um, like lifting and especially like bodybuilding and strength sports being more of like a middle to lower middle class pursuit 
and like cardio being more the type of things that the folks who intend to matriculate into academia like focusing on. Mm. And then more recently, uh, CrossFit blowing up in popularity, getting a lot of people who have a lot of money to spend on box fees into lifting weights, uh, maybe getting more academic types into lifting again. Like, I, I wonder if that's if that's also influencing things to some degree. Interesting. Yeah, and, and I wonder how much crossover there is between some of the people who are interested in researching CrossFit. Because I've met a few CrossFit researchers at conferences mm-hmm. and uh, in, in, in the bodybuilding world. That's interesting. And, uh, and yeah, I don't know about you, but for me, I've always wanted bodybuilding to be exclusively for the uber rich, just to know that I'm, I'm with my peers. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I couldn't even keep a straight face. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think that is interesting. And it's, that's, uh, that's, that's speculation that I, that I haven't thought of previously. So anywho, I mean, I, I could be completely full of shit. That's j- just a thought that came to mind. Hey, well, I, there's nothing wrong with thoughts. You know, you're not making any strong claims, and that's okay. But to talk about some claims, how's that for a segue? Let's talk about the research. And interestingly enough, uh, the, the peak week research follows the same pattern. So we've got some research that was done in the 80s and 90s. Then there was a big gap, and then we see it start up again more recently. And I think that's important because this is not to say that these traditions and practices haven't changed over time. They have even in just the last, uh, geez, 15 years that I've been involved in competitive bodybuilding, even just within the silo of natural bodybuilding, I've seen a pretty stark change in how often people manipulate water or electrolytes to the same degree. Some, some things have held true. I don't think carbohydrate loading practices have changed that much over time, but I think that's mm-hmm. interesting. So first, let's kind of talk about how common this is. Um, and this is not starting with, with research in the 80s and 90s, but uh, Chappelle and colleagues uh, did a survey of primarily UK bodybuilders, but it was recent, published in the last three years, if I recall correctly. And I think when you look at bodybuilding in the modern era, you're going to see more ubiquitous practices, at least across the English-speaking world, um, because of social media. And I think this is reasonably representative of the English-speaking bodybuilding world. But anyway, this, this survey of UK bodybuilders found that 91% of them manipulated something during peak week. They engaged in, in, in the quote-unquote peak week practice. They didn't just kind of coast in and leave things the same. So this is a incredibly common practice. More than 9 out of 10 bodybuilders are, are probably doing this and probably physique athletes in general. So that's to give someone an idea of the scope of it. Um, and then to talk about like what has been observed, we're going to go back in time a little bit. We'll actually follow the timeline of this research. And I think knowing that bodybuilders are doing this and have been doing this uh, by a long time, for, for a long time, excuse me, um, we, can, we can get little hints of, of what might be happening. So all the way back in the, I think the 80s and 90s, there was a study by Bauman and colleagues. And they noticed that in the last 24 to 48 hours, uh, in, in a group of bodybuilders, this is an observational design, that the bicep thickness increased when they measured them uh, right before competition by almost 5%. Now, we've talked about uh, the, the challenges of contest prep, and we've talked about how much it typically results in, in muscle loss, and it's a challenge to maintain glycogen while you're also trying to lose, lose body fat. So it's, it's unlikely that there's just this random spurt in muscle growth in the last, you know, days before competition. 
Uh, and knowing, if you look at the research, that these bodybuilders were probably engaging in some type of carbohydrate loading, it gives us a hint here uh, that, that something they're doing is quote-unquote rescuing performance, if you will. But again, this is just an observational study. Interestingly enough, not too long after that, we have literally the only experimental data on carbohydrate loading, which is only one aspect of peak weeks. And that was done by Ballin and colleagues. And this was really cool when I found this. I remember during my master's, Greg, I was going through all of the research on bodybuilders because my master's was specifically on uh, manipulating uh, macronutrient intake while dieting. Mm -hmm. And I thought this was pretty relevant. And I found this study and I was like, wow, I had never seen this before. But it, it is while I, I really appreciate that it exists, I do think it highlights the uniqueness of some of these strategies in the state of, of an extreme leanness and having been dieted for, for weeks, if not months at a time. So mm -hmm. Ballin attempted to replicate a carbohydrate load, but they did a couple of things that, that maybe preclude us from having strong confidence in their findings uh, being generalizable to bodybuilding. So first off, just to not bury the lead, uh, they didn't observe an increase in muscle girths after carbohydrate loading. And, and their conclusion was, hey, therefore, you know, carb lo loading doesn't do anything for muscle size. Mm -hmm. However, uh, the, the athletes they had were lifters, not bodybuilders, and they were not preparing for competition. So mm -hmm. the body fat percentage of these male participants was around 10%, which is a lot higher than what you'll see reported in some of these more recent case studies of between, you know, 4 to 6% for, uh, for, for, for male competitive bodybuilders. They hadn't been dieting. Um, and they actually weren't even in an energy deficit. Uh, all mm -hmm. they did was they had one group shift to a lower carbohydrate version of the same calorie intake and then one on a higher carbohydrate diet uh, and then saw what happened. So the, the question is, is, do we actually expect someone who is not lean, having not been dieted and not actively going into an energy deficit to really see substantial muscle glycogen losses? Um, and if you look at other research on carb loading in endurance athletes and carbohydrate restriction and what is required to deplete muscle glycogen, we see that muscle glycogen is relatively stable until you start exercising or if you're in a really large deficit and the changes aren't massive. So this is like a week-long study. Um, so I don't think we should have expected uh, just shifting the proportion of calories in a non-dieted state to actually have produced the kind of changes that bodybuilders are after. So unfortunately, mm -hmm. that's the only truly experimental data we have on this. Um, and, you know, I, I think, I, I don't know, but I, I suspect this study maybe didn't encourage a lot of additional research to be done uh, because we don't see any other experimental research. And the closest thing we have... Well, and, and you said they just looked at muscle girths, right? True, indeed. It, yeah, so they're, you know, maybe they would have found something if they used more reliable measures, like, you know, uh, ultrasound, mm -hmm. probably wouldn't have access to an MRI for a study like that, um, or just like high definition pictures and like yes. pixel analysis to analyze graininess, because that's, you know, that's, that's something that uh, people care about, uh, you know, very very reliable observation. You, you, got, you got to get measurements of graininess in there. So, you know. You know, you're being facetious, Greg, but I actually 100% agree that if we really want to measure quote unquote performance in an aesthetic sport, um, what you really need to do is recruit bodybuilding judges and then blind them to what is being done with the participants and have them actually score the different groups or the, the bodybuilders in different conditions. 
Uh, oh yeah, I, I, I was half joking, but I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, if the sport is visual, then the the measurements themselves, like it needs to be visual analysis. It's like, you know, if if you're interested in powerlifting performance, like just have people squat, bench, deadlift. Like that's the sport. Uh, you know, have them compete in the sport and and see how they do versus like, uh, you know, maybe like an isometric force output measurement or something like that. But yeah, like uh, muscle thicknesses or girths, that's all well and good. But ultimately, it's about achieving a look. So you know, just just uh, blind the judges to the participants, like blur their face out or something. Take pics. Ask the judges to say like, hey, which of these pics looks best? Like you know that that seems to make the most sense to me. Greg, it makes so much sense that Dame Rays and colleagues actually did something very similar to that. Uh, not what a segue. Reason. Yeah, you know, you, it's, we're, we're killing it. I feel like we've got simpatico here. Um, yeah, so 2019 study. Uh, the title is, and it tells you right here, Carbohydrate Loading Practices in Bodybuilders, Effects on Muscle Thickness, Photo Silhouette Scores, Mood States, and Gastrointestinal Symptoms. And that's a 2019 study. And that's exactly what Dame Rays did. Now, importantly... This is what I would classify as a quasi-experimental study. Uh, they mm-hmm. didn't actually experimentally change uh, the bodybuilders' diets and then uh, you know, have these very well-standardized groups. But what they did do was they observed a bunch of bodybuilders, 24 males specifically, prior to getting on stage, and then they put them in classifications based upon whether or not they practiced carb loading. So, you know... It's hard for me to knock that design for not being like balance, but, you know, just a better version of it. Because realistically, if we want to do studies on bodybuilders, um, it's really difficult for on game day or in in game week, if you will, to ask them to let uh, a couple of eggheads, at least that's how they perceive it, uh, go in there and experimentally modify what might have been working well for them for years uh, Mm -hmm. or that they might have paid a coach to help them design. Etc. So I think to some degree, we shouldn't have crazy expectations as far as the perfect study design. And I think quasi-experimental is probably about as good as it's going to get. Um, and I think we should can you just consider that anytime we're critiquing any of this research. But anyway, 24 male bodybuilders, uh, they're, they're delineated in two groups based upon whether they loaded carbohydrate or not. And the authors operationally uh, describe this as, as basically how high were their carbohydrates. Um, and essentially it was, did they go over, you know, five, five grams per kg of carbohydrate for, for multiple days. And the loading group on average was consuming nine grams per kg of carbohydrate compared to 5.2 in the non-loading group. So we're looking at almost a twofold difference in groups in terms of their carbohydrate consumption. Mm-hmm. And I think that tells you something. Um, and then, like I said, they did a really good job of using the specific criteria by which performance is measured in bodybuilding to gauge this. So they had bodybuilding judges uh, look at photo silhouettes. Now, that is a slight weakness in that the design was not to look at, you know, graininess, as, as you advised, Greg, which I, which I agree with. They weren't actually able to look at the photos of the competitors. I'm assuming this is because, for those who don't know, bodybuilding is a small sport. And the judges judge a lot of shows. So it's quite possible that they'd be able to identify who the participants in the study were um, by actually just seeing their physiques, even if you'd, you'd blacked out their faces. Mm-hmm. Um, there are ways around this for, in, for uh, enterprising researchers in the future. You can actually recruit judges from different regions. You know, for example, you could, you could do this study out in California uh, and then send some emails out to bodybuilding federations or shows that are conducted on the East Coast 
And because you know you can send digital pictures, you can get around this, and you could potentially get a little more uh, you know granularity, no pun intended, uh, for, for for the assessments of the physique. But anyway, uh, what they found was that the judges did rate the photo silhouettes as more muscular, or just higher ratings, I should say, uh, in the in the carb loading uh, bodybuilders, as well mm-hmm. as they observed an increase in muscle thickness and uh, triceps brachii muscle thickness. So of both the elbow flexors, so the biceps and the triceps in the loading group, where there was no uh, significant increase in the non-loading group. So I think this is pretty interesting uh, in that, like you said, compared to Ballon, they were just looking at girths. Now we're actually looking at ultrasound changes in muscle thickness, and we've got those photo silhouette scores and the group loading carbohydrate on both those metrics, and one being arguably the most specific to the sport, actually seemed to favor that carbohydrate loading group. I've got a question for you. Sure. Um, did they take measurements of anything other than biceps, triceps? Like, did, did they look at lower body at all? Let me look that up real quick. I think they did. And this is an interesting okay. observation to where I think, uh, I think there's probably a reason why sometimes we don't observe acute changes in lower body, um, like, like, indices of size in response to peaking. And that's that mm-hmm. they're very rarely pumped up. And that's mm-hmm. something, and also bodybuilders typically don't train their legs in like the last at least five days or sometimes longer. It depends on on what, how advent guard they are, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's a really common thing, especially in some of the untested ranks that are a little more traditional in my experience for carb loading, for people to stop training legs like five or seven days out and then not pump them up on game day. So mm-hmm. it does make you wonder if they're like progressively losing a little bit of, of like body water or sorry, mm-hmm. I should say lower body uh, muscle water over time as they get closer to the competition uh, because they don't want to have that blurriness. And typically in traditional bodybuilding approaches, also the leg days are brutal, you know, um, mm-hmm. not that they shouldn't be, but if you train them infrequently, say one to two times a week, as most bodybuilders are typically like to train and very, very hard and you're also doing cardio you're going to get edema that can blur the definition. So mm-hmm. I think people err on the side of just rest your legs because that's going to be the best improvement in, uh, in the visual quality of them and have separation. And it's mm-hmm. not worth, you know, risking losing that just to have a slightly larger legs. So that's, that's my guess. Um, gotcha. The, the, the reason I was asking, I, I had a bit of an ulterior motive. Um, th- this is something that I think you and I have talked about before off mic and that I know, uh, we have discussed on the podcast previously, my little pet theory that, uh, upper body and like specifically bench press performance tends to decrease in a deficit faster than lower body performance tends to, uh, my little pet theory, uh, is that upper body glycogen depletes quicker and to a Mm -hmm. greater extent than lower body glycogen does. Um, and so if, you know, if, if, uh, in these bodybuilders who one would assume were greatly depleted, uh, if there wasn't much of a change in quadriceps cross-sectional area or thickness after carb loading, that might suggest that like, you know, maybe even in those extreme conditions, uh, maybe the upper body was very glycogen depleted before loading, but the lower body wasn't, uh, at least not to the same extent. That's, that, that's kind of what I was thinking, uh, with, with asking that question. No, I think it's a very valid question. And, and I, I think that kind of makes sense. Like you might even be better at using other fuels and preserving glycogen in the lower body because we're ambulatory and, and we're constantly mm-hmm. moving. 
um, while we maybe we're not with the upper body. And so I think there, there's a, there's a lot of reason. And I maybe I'm just speculating and, and trying to, to to confirm my own observations. But this is definitely something I've noticed anecdotally is that changes in fullness in response to temporally when you trained or when you start dieting seem more obvious in the upper body than lower. So I don't mm-hmm. think you're off. Um, and I did pull up the study to clarify. Um, I don't think this study is is a great piece of evidence to support what what what, what you're what you're thinking. Uh, but there is some other research we'll talk about that that might because I think the only muscle thicknesses they did with ultrasound were the elbow flexors and tricep. Uh, Damn. Yeah. Okay. However, that's fine. however, they did do circumferences everywhere else, but there weren't significant changes, um, if I recall correctly, that were different between groups in in the circumferences themselves. But anyway. Principal findings is where they took these muscle thicknesses, they did observe changes that favored the carbohydrate loading group, as well as those photo silhouette scores, um, you know, favoring them. So anyway, I think the take home here is that carbohydrate loading probably does make you look bigger. Um, and the uh, I would love to see some follow-up research of a similar design where they're able to actually look at, you know, high definition pictures. Um, because one of, the, one of the fears, quote unquote, is, is, I don't know if you've ever heard this term before, Greg, spilling over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for those who aren't aware of bodybuilding terminology, the idea is that you can only fit so much glycogen in there and therefore so much water into a muscle. And if you overload carbohydrates, that that water has to go somewhere. And spilling over is when you carbohydrate load and you're looking better, better, better. And you start looking worse because you're losing definition because you try to load too much carbohydrate in either too short of a time period or just the absolute amount was more than your body could store as glycogen. At least that is what people think is happening when they see that. Um, there's a lot of variables at play here, so it's very difficult to disentangle what's causing that. It's not like the food you eat doesn't have water content. It's not like the food you eat doesn't have electrolytes and all these things could be uh, creating subtle shifts or that you're not just stressed out or that maybe you just need a good pump up uh, or maybe you just need to wait a little bit longer to look better. But um, ultimately, that that is kind of the prevailing theory so people tend to be uh, a little more individualized with carbohydrate loading approaches, ideally, and finding what is right for the person. Um, and a photo silhouette would not capture those differences. So it's possible that you know this observation of uh, the photo silhouettes being improved in the carbohydrate carbohydrate loading group um, could have also happened with looking worse if 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 you know enough of those uh, participants in that study or in that group, I should say. Uh, also, quote unquote, spilled over, which I think is just an important limitation to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. So, uh, moving on, we do have some other research, and this is actually going to be coming out shortly in mass where we discuss it, uh, that actually kind of looks at whether or not what bodybuilders think they're doing is actually accomplished. So, I mentioned earlier that some of the underlying theory between, say, restricting water, loading potassium, cutting sodium, and loading carbohydrates, kind of your, your typical big three of bodybuilding peak week, if you will, uh, are to increase the intra to extracellular water ratio. And there is a study that recently came out that purported to confirm that this is indeed uh, what happened. And that study is titled uh, Changes in Intra to Extracellular Water Ratio and Bioelectrical Parameters from Day Before to Day of Competition in Bodybuilders, a pilot study and that is by Nunez et al. Uh, and it just came out, geez, I want to say like last month. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, this is going to be good for those who really want to dive into it in depth and mass. But to give you a kind of broad overview of it, 
essentially all they did was they 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 asked a group of bodybuilders um, on the day prior to the competition when they were weighing in to get some some anthropometric measurements and also to get a bioelectrical impedance assessment of not their body composition but their body water so total body water and an estimation of extracellular and intracellular water content and then they did it again right before they pumped up and got on stage the next day on game day and the principal finding is, is that they found the intracellular to extracellular water ratios increased in every single competitor uh, that they analyzed. So out of 11 bodybuilders, all 11 increased this from day prior to day of. Uh, and they noted these were the highest ratios that have been observed in the literature and the highest individual score for the one bodybuilder with the highest score out of the sample of 11. And indeed, it was 4.4 standard deviations above anything the authors had found in the research. So at face value, this study suggests that bodybuilders know exactly what they're doing uh, and what they're doing does do theoretically what they claimed it does and they increase their intercellular to extracellular water ratio. However, uh, one thing I noted initially in, uh, in some of the methods was that you know that the methods here leave a little bit to be desired in so much as uh, how accurate can these measurements be when they're not done in lab ideal conditions? So for, for those who are not aware, if you want bioelectrical impedance to be decently reliable, you need to take it at the same time of day with the same proximity to training as last time, uh, with the same diet and a similar hydration status, and then you can get pretty good um, reliability on, on these measurements. And that is, not only does that apply to body composition, but it also can apply to body water. And I left it at that. And then our colleague, I think we established his name was uh, Dr. Eric Trexler. Mm -hmm. He went even more in depth than this and pointed out some issues that even just saying that probably is not enough. And if we actually look at the type of bioelectrical impedance that was used, which was specifically single frequency, that actually is probably not sufficient to distinguish between intra and extracellular water uh, compartments. And actually it still uses estimation equations where if you were to use multi-frequency uh, bioelectrical impedance or spectroscopy, you have multiple signal frequencies, some which do and don't penetrate uh, the cell. So you can actually uh, accurately estimate the different uh, compartments of water and not just total body water. And then I would say, Greg, and correct me if I'm wrong, even beyond that, you started to look at the actual findings as they were reported, and you thought mm -hmm. that perhaps there were some mathematical indications that they reached some kind of ceiling um, with yeah. their equations. So can you tell me a little about that just to make sure I, I don't get it wrong? Oh yeah, so for the for the post-training uh, intracellular to extracellular water ratios and intracellular to total body water ratios, um, as, as Eric said, from pre to post, all of the subjects saw an increase from baseline. Um, but then those ratios, just the, the post measurement, everyone was very, very clustered near the top. Like, uh, all of those ratios for all of the subjects were, you know, within like 0.1 of each other, like super, super clustered versus uh, a lot more heterogeneity and just a lot more value spread out at the the pre-study assessment. Uh, and so I was thinking like, damn, that's way more homogeneity than you ever see in human measures of anything. Um, and like, 
uh, Eric Trexler. He's he's the the BIA and body comp expert. Um, so I, I just kicked it over to him. I was just like, "Hey, man, this seems uh, this seems strange that there's this much clustering. Um, is there some sort of like physiological constraint on what these ratios could be that's maybe causing a ceiling effect, or just some?" like mathematical constraint based on how these equations work that would uh, bring about a ceiling effect. And so he went and dug up the citation that the the prediction equation was based on that was used in this study. Um, and basically, if you just plugged infinity in for all of the variables uh, that, that actually went into uh, getting those ratios, if you just plugged infinity in, it would... Uh, give you a value that was basically identical to mm. where you saw all of the subjects getting clumped up. Um, so, I mean, basically, I, I think whatever they did was something that uh, just kind of broke the equation <laughs> um, yeah. or like put put people in a state where the prediction equations were no longer representative of what was necessarily going on physiologically. Yeah, and I think that's a really just important point that prediction equations, when you're talking about single frequency BIA assessments of body water, are still being used. I think the prevailing thought is that um, BIA or BIS of any type is measuring body water to estimate body composition. But when we're talking specifically about single frequency, it is estimating body water to therefore even make additional estimations about body composition. Um, and I think the, the, I don't want to sound too critical of the authors because to some degree their hands were tied here. So for example, they noted that the athletes were fasted for 1.5 hours at least. And that was the specific wording. And I was like, you know, ideally this is like a 12 hour overnight fast and no training and, and you know, for the day prior. Um, but how do you, but you can't do that. Now, all of a sudden it's not an observational study. Now you're asking people to not carb load because they're typically the reason why it was probably 1.5 hours is they're having carbs every one to two hours or carb loading. Um, mm -hmm. and you're, you're supposed to ask them to be in a euhydrated state. Well, we can't, that's, that's the variable we're actually investigating to see the effects of, right? Um, so we couldn't have asked, the authors couldn't have asked these bodybuilders to maintain uh, a, a standardized process because it would be messing with the actual experimental question. So to some degree, they simply could not uh, do what they needed to do to improve the accuracy of these equations. And on top of that, though, these are equations, and these equations can only be so accurate. And if you were to go into the text of where these equations were developed, they discussed that even when you do everything right, there is a potential range of uh, under or overestimation uh, for total body water of around 5.6 kilograms, and then between roughly 4 kilograms to 3.6 kilograms for extracellular water and intracellular water by up to 6 kilograms. So those are pretty big estimation errors, uh, Greg. I don't mm -hmm. know how much that, that matters for the reliability of between, sorry, within subject comparisons day to day, um, but at the very least, there is questionable validity to this, um, even if we, we do see similar clusters for the same individuals in terms of their data points. And then the final problem is that um, these equations were developed in the first place because the normal quote-unquote equations that are used, they don't take into account the body geometries of athletes. 
So, and, and that's good. So, I, I mean, this is great that this equation was used rather than just whatever standardized equations might have been used in lieu of them. Um, but if you look at the, the explanation that the authors had for why these equations are necessary, they say, hey, you know, athletes have very different body geometries to the general public. And this is something that researchers know but don't account for. And it can introduce errors into the estimations of these body water compartments. You know, I, I don't know how many researchers actually know that before they decide to use BIA. Um, I was being nice. Like one, one assumption that I feel like more people should be aware of because I think it's very funny and delightful. Uh, one of the assumptions is that the human body is shaped like a cylinder, um, hmm. which it's it's not. But uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> that's one of the underlying assumptions of BIA that uh, is never met. But whatever, we, we just roll with it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is true. Like it is unfortunate that if you're not an expert in your field and you're using a research method, your typical researcher standard of, will I use this? And will I, will I do it a certain way is has someone else previously done it? And can I cite yeah. them? You know? Yeah. Has, has someone gotten this method through review before? Correct. Yeah. And as we've discussed on this podcast, review is, I'll just be nice and say an, an imperfect process. Uh, that could be improved upon. Um, and again, this is no fault of the researchers. You can't be an expert on everything. Um, and when other people who you think are experts are doing it wrong, it's very difficult to know that you too are therefore doing it wrong. But nonetheless, it's just important that we understand the limitations of this study so we don't over-extrapolate. So anyway, if, if we think that the general public is different from the type of athletes who this equation was developed for, which is like team sport athletes, track and field athletes, endurance athletes, I think it's reasonable to assume that untested bodybuilders are pretty different from those athletes in terms of their body geometry, especially the day of competition when they're in stage shape. So I think that's a really big limitation. And I think we need to understand that there's a huge asterisk next to the findings of this study. One thing I don't think is unreasonable to state, considering this was a within subject design compared just a day apart, is that perhaps the directionality at the group level is accurate. And maybe the things that bodybuilders do are potentially increasing their intra to extracellular water ratios. Um, but one thing I can't get on board with, Greg, is that the authors specifically advised using BAA assessment to gauge the effectiveness of the peak. And the issue there is that even if we are seeing, you know, these changes in the water ratios that are reflected in the study, how do we know that's actually a good thing for appearance because if we go all the way back to my my theoretical explanation that is traditionally used for peak weeks the idea that you want to increase your intra to extracellular water ratio it sounds really logical up front but when you think about it for more than a few seconds yeah because muscle cells are the only cells in the body uh so yeah yeah it, it, it makes sense yeah that's it right extracellular i don't want that well, let's, let's just think about this for a second, right? So the vascular system is extracellular. And mm -hmm. I've heard the pump is good. I've heard it feels like coming uh, from a reliable source, from a documentary. Whoa, 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 whoa. This, this is a Christian family values podcast. We don't talk about those sorts of bodily functions here. You know what? And, and more importantly, I believe that same person, despite their uh their their historical relevance to the scene has done a few things in recent times that make me just not want to support them like suggesting 
that maybe freedom isn't the end all be all. And also, I believe they actually smoke weed on camera. So I've got to I've got to walk that back. I, I apologize to the listeners. Thank you. Uh, no, no, thank you, Greg. Um, so more importantly, um, like getting back to the subject at hand, if we were to decrease the extracellular uh, water compartment, that would decrease theoretically uh, the water content of the vascular system, which might impede your ability to get a pump up per se. Mm-hmm. Um, also, if you think about it, you know, I was mentioning earlier how, you know, edema and the muscle swelling post-workout can can change appearance. It doesn't always negatively affect appearance. One thing I noticed the day after I do an upper body workout, I just look more swole and more separated. And mm-hmm. I'm presuming that there is some degree of intramuscular, but not, necessar- not necessarily intracellular swelling going on uh, that might be making me just look a little more jacked. So mm-hmm. that's not necessarily directly relevant to peak week, but it is an example of where intramuscular and intracellular should not be seen as synonyms. Um, and, and the vascular system example is an example of uh, how extracellular and subcutaneous should not be seen as synonyms. So once you start to wrap your head around that, you can see where there are instances where this starts to fall apart. Um, you know, another common finding when you look at these case studies of bodybuilders when they look at cardiovascular metrics is that typically you will see blood pressure go down and heart rate drop pretty drastically, which kind of goes hand in hand with, you know, reds and overtraining. But Mm -hmm. one thing you'll experience when you're dieting, and especially as you get leaner and leaner, is that you might just stand up and get lightheaded. And Mm -hmm. you'll maybe try to get your heart rate on like, say, an elliptical or something like that. And you'll just get like error because you're below the (laughs) lowest for resting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's difficult to get a pump. I can tell you that you're on low carbohydrates. You're, you're parasympathetically dominant all the time. It's, it's a challenge to get a pump. And one common recommendation of cutting sodium, I don't see that helping it. You know, it's not like stock standard that every study where they manipulate or increase sodium, do you see a commensurate increase in blood pressure, but certainly for certain populations and to a slight degree, you can see acute changes uh, in blood pressure in response to sodium manipulation. So mm-hmm. I don't think it's a good idea to kind of give that double whammy when you've already been dieting to then cut sodium. And I think another mechanistic thing to consider is that the uh, GLUT4 transporter in the gut is a sodium-dependent channel. So if you're trying to load carbohydrates and if you're drastically cutting sodium and the foods you're eating are low in sodium, you could be making that carbohydrate loading process slower. You could be exacerbating GI distress. It's very common people to report cramping or potential bloating uh, during the, the carb loading process. And I, I don't know <laughs> that that carb loading goes well hand in hand with cutting water and, and, and cutting sodium. And I have seen a number of competitors who've experienced some gastrointestinal distress in response to that and not filled out the way they expected and then struggled to get a pump. So again, that's all based on the idea of trying to leverage the sodium potassium pump. But I'm not convinced that we necessarily want to increase the intra to extracellular water ratio in all cases or to a large degree. And we do not have any experimental or observational data that would suggest that if you do so, there is a commensurate improvement in appearance. And I think that's the next step. So, yeah, so, I mean, I'm, I'm not even I'm not even sure you can influence mm. sodium and potassium levels across across the the muscle muscle membrane i mean like that's that's exquisitely well regulated uh and i mean if would you suggest greg that you might have a a bodybuilder have a heart attack if they were able to do that 
I mean, it could be a heart attack, could be brain swelling from hyponatremia. I mean, like the the reductions in sodium levels that lead to hyponatremia are, I mean, like really big in a physiological sense, but are like kind of small in just terms of like a raw percentage basis. Like you, you don't have to manipulate uh, sodium and potassium levels across membranes very much before really bad things start happening. Um, so yeah, I mean, e- even if that theoretically would enhance appearance, I don't know if you could do so without killing yourself. Like, I, 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 I literally I don't up, think that's possible. I don't disagree with you, Greg. And the reason I brought up that morbid example of a heart attack is that has actually happened. There's been a number of uh, untested bodybuilders who have, you know, had full body cramps or he actually even had uh, heart failure, uh, presumably mm-hmm. due to messing with this because the heart is, of course, a muscle um, and have died because of. Now, for the record, these are not just these aren't natural bodybuilders like eating more salt or sorry, eating less salt and eating bananas. We're talking about people who are using prescription diuretics in combination mm-hmm. with everything else. So I, I don't think anyone's at risk of this happening with simple uh, nutritional manipulations, but this has happened at the IFBB level with some pretty prominent examples in the last few decades. Um, and so maybe bodybuilders can, and they suffer the consequences, Greg, um, which is unfortunate for sure. But I think at the very least to me, uh, to give credit to the authors, this was a challenging thing to do, and they're trying to answer an important mechanistic question about how do appearance changes come about from the peak week protocols. And I, at the very least, I'd say perhaps it is possible that bodybuilders are changing their intra to extracellular water ratio, obviously not to the mm-hmm. degree where they're all dying, um, at least in this study. <laughs> uh, I didn't see a follow-up. They could all be dead, but I don't think they are. Uh, and I think it would be great to, to follow up this study with, with future research so we can get to the mechanisms by which uh, bodybuilders are enhancing appearance, if it is even resulting in appearance enhancement. That makes sense to me. Um, j- just as a, as a competitive bodybuilder and a coach, um, wh- what's your just kind of like gut level assumption? Like what, what do you personally think works and to what degree do you think it affects appearance? Fantastic question, Greg. I'm glad you asked. So the, uh, the things that, that I have seen consistently be effective is carbohydrate loading. Um, I do sometimes wonder if we're just correcting depletion rather than mm-hmm. actually super compensating and filling out. Um, so, and, and actually the DeMareas study made me go, oh, maybe, maybe it is more than that. Because, you know, five grams per kilogram um, during peak week is not a low carbohydrate intake. And it is mm-hmm. quite higher than probably what most of them were dieting on. But given that the, uh, the nine gram per kg group, uh, did, did look better and had, you know, increases in muscle thickness, maybe there is something to it. So I have seen success with individualized carbohydrate loading strategies. Um, this is one of the reasons why I like, um, refeeds and diet breaks is it gives you the opportunity to play with what is our new maintenance and how much can we push carbohydrates up? And then you can look at the time course in response to a refeed to see when someone looks their best. Mm-hmm. And people generally fall in a couple different categories. You see people who just linearly look better as they have, like, let's say they have two refeed days in a row, you know, halfway through day one, they're looking a little bit better. You know, at night, they're looking even better in the morning, a little you know, a little bit worse because they've gone eight hours of that eating. And then they start to look even better again throughout the rest of that day. And then the day after they maintain that look. And then the day after that, they start to fade. 
but you see other people who kind of look a little softer during that process. Um, like they're, they are maybe retaining additional water, but they're also filling out. Uh, and there's kind of a lag and they might look their best say the day after the refeeds. Mm -hmm. And there's other people who, um, maybe weren't that depleted in the first place, or maybe don't need to load that aggressively and just simply kind of going more to maintenance look better. So people who operate on a spectrum and it's probably relevant, it's probably relative to their body mass, their diet, and just how depleted they had to get to get lean. So I think mm -hmm. an individualized carbohydrate loading strategy that is, um, you know, timed in such a way that you avoid that quote unquote, like bad load look, but also hits them at the point when they're still looking separated. And then I have actually had success and this is anecdotal. So I don't think it means a whole heck of a lot with, if anything, loading sodium, not if, like huge, but like a gram or two, uh, mm -hmm. in, in the final days and day of competition. Um, as it seems to correct some of those low blood pressure issues and seems to enhance, not in everyone, their ability to get a pump and therefore their appearance. Mm -hmm. But I don't try to manipulate electrolytes much. If anything, I try to keep them relatively constant and I'm loading carbohydrate and I'm roughly keeping water the same as well. Um, mm -hmm. And the big caveat, Greg, is that I do start to practice this in advance. If someone's on schedule for getting lean, you know, let's say they're six to eight weeks out from their first show, um, it's a great opportunity to change the refeed schedule such that it mimics what you're planning to do for the uh, the carb load, and it should be mm -hmm. informed by by prior refeeds. And then you can tweak and adjust uh, leading up to it. And the only thing you really stand to lose is that if you're manipulating sodium to some degree, if you're ma manipulating food choices, it can mess with your weigh-ins a little bit. But hopefully at that point, when you're six to eight weeks out, you're primarily relying on visual data anyway, rather than the scale. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Um, a, another question I had is, so it, it sounds like for the most part, the research methods that have been used to look into this before, um, you know, range from not great to pretty good. Um, but like in, in your mind, what would be the ideal way to study this? Uh, and, and I'm thinking about this both in terms of practically, like just enhancing people's looks. I, I think we both agree that some sort of like an anonymized photographs would, would probably be the play there. Um, but then I'm, I'm also curious, like, uh, like mechanistically, how could you look into this? Because something's going on that's enhancing appearance but maybe you can push it too far and get spillover. So like, what is spillover? Like, mm -hmm. how how would you be able to measure that? So just like, how, how would you design a study to figure out what is actually going on? That's a good question. I think, I think for one, there is actually a place for more experimental work on the, uh, this of, a, of an applied nature. Mm -hmm. um, I think you can potentially recruit people who are reasonably lean and then diet them and then just look at different carbohydrate or any, any strategy and just to see, does it, does it result in better outcomes? And I actually mm -hmm. like the idea of using um, reasonably lean and reasonably muscular trained individuals who are not competitors, because mm -hmm. then you have no issue with using local bodybuilding judges because they won't see them, they won't mm -hmm. be aware of who they are. Um, and while it's not a perfect population match, like you, you'd reasonably think that some of these things should apply to, to someone who's a non-competitor. And then you can you can you can find a population who's more open to you know experimental manipulation of their diet uh, mm -hmm. and, and training, and then you can start to look at like each individual component in a more reductionist fashion, and does that result in improvement in appearance? So that's kind of the applied one. 
to really get at the mechanisms, I think, you know, one thing I, I uh, discussed in the mass article was that multi-frequency multi BIA is probably, or BIS is probably a better step, but it's probably not sufficient. Because when I was doing my, again, I'm not Eric Trexler, but digging into the research to my, the best I could tell when I looked at review papers on this, if you really want to get a true valid, quote unquote, gold standard assessment of body water and body water compartments, mm -hmm. there is no single method. Um, and the researchers are relatively in consensus that you need to use multiple different assessments of hydration to get the, these different compartments. So you'd probably need to do uh, multi-frequency BIA or BIS along with a couple other body water assessments, and then you'd be able to actually tell whether there are these big shifts. I think that in addition to measuring, say, uh, blood pressure changes, in addition to measuring actual glycogen content rather than just appearance, Mm -hmm. um, and I would also like to see some qualitative uh, interviews with the, or at least questionnaires with Likert scales of the the participants to ask them how their pump was, you mm -hmm. know, because to me that is one of the main variables that that I, I see influenced by what you do in peak week is when it comes time to you're about to get on stage, a good pump up can make a pretty substantial difference in the way you look, and if you can't mm -hmm. get one, that's not good. Yeah. So. I think if you asked all those questions and then you looked for relationships between those variables. Well, and, with... and you could even bring back circumferences for that. Just like absolutely look at uh, look at flexed arm circumference pre and post pump and like who's who's getting the bigger pump. Absolutely. 100 percent agree. And you do that in conjunction with, um, the, you know, the the. The, the, the photo uh, recommendations I made previously of, of using judges who don't know those people that should get you through your IRB. Um, mm -hmm. And then you can look at relationships between variables, you know, like, okay, uh, we had improvements in the folks who did X, Y, and Z, um, and those were related to these other variables. And I think then we're starting to understand the mechanisms. Maybe we see the exact opposite relationship, you know, people who mm -hmm. increased their intracellular to extracellular water ratio actually looked worse um, because blood pressure dropped too much or something. I have no idea, but I think it's certainly not an assumption that we should hold on to that the underlying assumed physiological principles of peak week are in fact doing what we, we think they're doing. Um, mm -hmm. Because how many times in exercise science have we thought something works a certain way and the observation is correct, but the mechanism is wrong. That's a yeah. repeated error. So I, I think we, we, we just don't want to make that same error now just because people have been saying it for 40 years doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's the way things actually working. Yeah, that, that makes sense for sure. And, and I had, uh, just one more question that I, I think I know the answer to, but I'm uh, always delighted to be surprised. So um, the the idea of using bodybuilding judges to just visually assess how people are looking based on anonymized photos. Do you know if there's been any research on the reliability of bodybuilding judging scores? Or is that just like, is that a component uh, of like getting certified to be a bodybuilding judge, because like ultimately if one were to use that as a research method, the underlying assumption would be that that is a valid and reliable measure. And, and I think it's inherently valid because ultimately like if these people are judging the competitions and these people are competing in the competitions, the scores from the judges are the scores that matter. So like it's, it's inherently a valid measure or a, yeah, it would be a valid measure. But do we know that those measurements are actually reliable? Because I, I hear bodybuilders 
you know, complain about like politics, like, oh man, I, I brought a great package and this other guy beat me. But like, I, I feel like that's oftentimes sour grapes. But do we, is there actual like quantifiable evidence that bodybuilding judges do reliably award scores based on how people look? Great question. And I think it is. Um, so no, there's no data on that. However, there is a part of the process that is federation specific, which mm-hmm. probably improves reliability. So I'm going to okay. give a shout out to the INBF, WNBF. The way they do it, if you want to become uh, a judge, is you go through a bit of a training course and then you do what's called test judging. Mm-hmm. So typically at a, at a show, you're going to have five, seven or nine judges and they throw out uh, the high and the low score, and mm-hmm. then they compile the remaining judges. So you're getting at least you know three, five, or seven. Uh, in addition to that, there may be two other people or one other person or three other people sitting at the judging table who are there to unofficially judge the competition as test judges. And mm-hmm. I've actually gone through this process back in the day. And you're supposed to have at least a 80% agreement with the, with the final scores for each division for you to become a judge. And you're supposed to go okay. through the process of doing this at a local and then also a bigger show. Um, so I think if that is the type of procedure that's followed, it'll be great. But some other federations, especially in smaller local areas where they don't have enough people, it's going to mm-hmm. be like, hey, can we get some competitors and some pros and some experienced people in the community to sit on this panel? Um, mm-hmm. Which is also the source of the claims of politics issues because it's it's great. It's a it's a, like a family and it's a very small niche community, but everybody knows each other. So that means if... yeah any of the judges are a trainer, it's very easy to get claims of, of politics. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, that, that sounds like, uh, it, for INBF, WNBF, that, that sounds like a, a surprisingly rigorous process. So that's that's really good to hear. Yeah, I, I can't say that is the, the case for all federations, but just to put it out there, I think that is a good way of doing things. Sweet. Uh, all right, so looking at the time... I don't know that I have time for Q&A. Um, it is 6.31 local time, and I have uh, family showing up in 15 minutes. So I, I think it might be time to play us out. Up to you, Greg. If you want to give maybe one Q and, and A even. And yeah, then... you know you know what? I, I do have one. All right. Um, all right so... <laughs> Yeah, th- this is this is topical for this episode and this episode only. Uh, so Jordan Nathaniel uh, in the Stronger by Science Facebook group asks, uh, "Why is Greg not a permanent host yet?" And to answer that question, I do think that this episode shakes up the power structure on the Stronger by Science podcast a bit uh, because Eric Trexler always refers to himself as the one and only permanent host of the podcast, and I am the temporary guest co-host. But now, I would say that I myself am the permanent guest co-host because I have been on every episode. Uh, but he, when he comes back, will be the temporary permanent host. Um, so yeah, s- still, still a guest co-host, but I, I would say that maybe now it's time to flip-flop who is temporary and who is permanent. Uh, that is also now canon within this continuity of the Stronger by Science cinematic universe. And again, if uh, if anyone messes with that continuity, uh, maybe by the name of Eric Trexler, just destroy his fucking inbox on Instagram and he will appreciate you for it.
Well, I, I personally don't have a dog in this race, so I will, I'll let you guys, uh, you know, debate that next time. By the way, that's Eric, E-R-I-C, at strongerbyscience.com. Um, Correct. He also has social media. So if you don't get an immediate response within five minutes, definitely hit him up on Instagram, uh, Facebook. Does he tweet? Uh he himself doesn't tweet, but he I, I see him liking things on Twitter, so he he's on there. Yeah, tweeted him as yeah. well, just to make sure you don't want to you don't want these types of important issues to to, to go under the radar, folks. Um, Correct. So I think that was easily the most important question you could have taken, Greg. So excellent selection. Um, I think it's the only one that I had on this list that I could answer quickly. <laughs> fair call, fair call. So uh, yeah. what do we have to play us out? Yeah, so uh, we have a media recommendation, uh, and, and this is great that Eric Helms is here. We we talked about this before we started recording. Uh, I, I threw this out as a potential option for to play us out, and uh, we couldn't do this with Eric Trexler because he doesn't watch anything. Uh, I think he has seen maybe fewer than five movies in his entire life, doesn't watch TV, uh, just not that kind of guy. But uh, this is a show that Eric Helms and I, uh, it, ha- have you finished season two yet? Oh, yeah. Okay, we, we've got two episodes left. Um, but yeah, so let's see, maybe like two weeks ago, uh, my wife and I started watching Righteous Gemstones, binged the entire first season, almost through the second season. All of the episodes are out already. And uh, yeah, Righteous Gemstones, it is such, it's such a funny show. Um Great characters. It's uh, it, it, so it's starring Danny McBride, and if you've watched some of his stuff, um, it, it tends to be pretty funny, but it can sometimes just be so over the top that it, um, I don't know. Like it, it's it's still fun to watch an episode at a time, but I think like for binging purposes, it can become like a little bit grating. I think, but I I think Righteous Gemstones finds a better tone to make it. Both just as funny on an episode-by-episode basis, but also much more bingeable. Uh, And and I think that uh, Eric and I both agree that that is due to the tremendous acting chops of John Goodman playing the family's patriarch, Eli Gemstone, delivering an absolutely phenomenal performance. Yeah, I can't echo that recommendation more. And I I 100% agree that if it was just McBride and crew and that style of of humor... um, it wouldn't have the same punch because, I mean, I like Greg. You mentioned that there are more absurd things that they have done. This is a pretty absurd show, but mm-hmm. you find the absurdity funnier because it gets brought back. With there are a number of characters in the show who are are not insane, and yeah. it reminds you that they exist in a sane world doing insane things, which makes it funny. And I think John mm-hmm. Goodman is a. A fantastic example of that. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, I echo this recommendation 100%. And it is, uh, it's a show, so it, it's a show about um, a family that runs a megachurch. So as a podcast that supports strong Christian family values, um, I would say everything in The Righteous Gemstones really helps put the best foot forward for that community, for our community, um, so I, I appreciate that it's uh, preaching the good word to the masses as well. So not, not only is it entertaining, it will also uh, h- help you get your soul right, which, you know, you, you love to see 
uh, coming out of the normally godless and forsaken uh, Hollywood entertainment industry. And again, if you're someone who uh, maybe struggles with satire or sarcasm <laughs> um, and you take any issue with what you see in that show or you don't feel it aligns with what Greg just said, the email you want to hit is eric at strongerbyscience.com. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, just let us know your detailed thoughts uh, on, on, on that specifically, and I'm sure it'll get back to you quickly. And if not, again, social media, just hit them up on all accounts. It's just the most efficient way to communicate. Correct. All right, folks. Well, that about does it for this episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. Uh, make sure to give us a follow, a like, and a subscribe. And if you've got any thoughts, comment as well. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.